0: Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Catholic Light. On the second half of today's episode, we'll read paragraphs 595 through 623 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And we'll talk a bit about that tension between, A, our belief in a God who is outside of time and space, and can therefore see all that we will do. And B, simultaneously, we as human beings have free will and can freely choose our actions. We are not little robots uh, who automatically do what what God has predestined us to do. Over the years, I would have students say, in regards to Judas and what Christ says about him at the Last Supper, um, you know, the Bible says about Judas, it would have been better for him if he had never been born. So in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verse 24, Christ talks about Judas as he you know, is about to betray him. He says it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. And they would question over the years, isn't that unfair to Judas? And I would wonder that myself. It seems you know, very sad for Judas that Christ already knows he's going to betray him, already sees the, the path he's about to trod. It seems like uh, Judas was predestined to be the betrayer and didn't really have a choice about the matter. So you start to wonder, is he just a pawn? And if God knew that he would betray him, uh, commit suicide, as as scripture says, and potentially end up in hell, isn't that mean to create him in the first place? So these are all good, really thoughtful questions. Um, One of the reasons I just loved teaching high school uh, was so, so many questions that the students verbalized, I think are questions that we all verbalize and they just ask them in such a, a beautiful um, really honest way. so in regards to some of these questions, first, we can say this we, we don't know for sure if Judas is in hell. so Lucifer, the devil is the only being that the church says for sure is in hell okay so the church knowing that she's not God but simply communicates and faithfully hands on uh, the teachings of God, does not make the call okay, and say such and such is in in hell and so and so is not. So the only being that the church says for sure is in hell is Lucifer or Satan. Over the years, people like Dante Alighieri, a famous Italian uh, writer, puts Judas in hell in his, his fictional work, The Inferno, Um, At one point in my studies at Steubenville, I had a professor who said, okay, come on, there's no way Hitler's in purgatory or heaven. Stop being sentimental. He's probably in hell. Um, So over the years, different people close to us, maybe far removed from us, have assigned different people to hell. But the the church will never say so-and-so is in hell. Also on a side note from this, uh, we can talk a little bit about suicide and what the Catechism says about suicide. So Judas, after he betrays Christ, uh, he goes out and hangs himself, just mortified and, and deeply saddened over what he has just done. And over the years, um, you know, people have, have asked, if suicide, the taking of one's own life, is a mortal sin, which eternally separates us from God, and that's the very last thing a person does, then aren't they automatically in hell? The Catechism very beautifully says in paragraph 2283, after affirming the goodness of life and the justice of preserving it, the Catechism says, We should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives. By ways known to him alone, God can provide the opportunity for salutary repentance. The Church prays for persons who have taken their own lives. In other words, not one of us knows what was going through that person's head and heart as he or she committed suicide. And so we entrust that person to the mercy of God. We pray for the repose of his or her soul. And we trust that God loves that person infinitely more than we do. And so we, we hope for their eternal salvation and continue to pray for them uh, after he or she has died. Second, It's this question about Judas and if God knew, you know, ahead of time that he would betray him, that he would turn from him, yet Judas is perfectly free to make these decisions. Uh, We we encounter another one of those beautiful both-and situations or seeming conundrums. So first, we affirm once again that God is outside of time and space. Therefore, he sees all past, present, and future in what's referred to as the eternal now. We also trust, believe, that he has a plan. It's not haphazard. Nothing's a surprise to him. Like, oh, shoot, one of my 12 just betrayed me. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 599 says, Jesus's violent death was not the result of chance in an unfortunate coincidence of circumstances, but as part of the mystery of God's plan, as St. Peter explains to the Jews of Jerusalem in his first sermon on Pentecost. He says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Paragraph 600 goes on to say, to God, all moments of time are present in their immediacy. And then paragraph 601 says, the scriptures had foretold this divine plan of salvation through the putting to death of the righteous one, my servant, as mystery of universal redemption, that is, as the ransom that would free men from the slavery of sin. So God not only mapped out this plan from the beginning of eternity, pause and consider that mind-bender for a moment, the beginning of eternity. Eternity has no beginning. So God always foresaw this, knew this, had this beautiful plan, even before Adam and Eve committed original sin, to send his only beloved son to suffer and die for us, to save us, to open the gates of heaven. He saw how it would all unfold in every detail. At the same time, And here's the both-and concept. Every person involved in the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and of salvation history is actively using his or her free will. So just like Adam and Eve chose to disobey the Lord, to give in to the temptations of the devil and commit original sin, Judas chose to go to the chief priests and hand over Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. Paragraph 599 of the Catechism says, the biblical language, so that which is used in speaking of God's eternal plan of salvation, does not mean that those who handed him over were merely passive players in a scenario written in advance by God. And then paragraph 600 goes on to say, when therefore he establishes his eternal plan of predestination, he includes in it each person's free response to his grace, And for the sake of accomplishing his plan of salvation, God permitted the acts that flowed from their blindness. So did God make Judas betray him? No. Was God able to see that Judas would betray him while Judas simultaneously acted out of his own free will? Yes. So you're saying that God is outside of time and space and able to see what we're going to choose in the future and we're perfectly free to choose or not choose it. Exactly. So that language of God, quote unquote, permitted the acts that flowed from their blindness. That's a bit haunting. Okay, It speaks first to the beauty and respectfulness of God. So he allows us to act as we desire. Um, it also points to this concept of God's perfect versus permissive will. So God has a perfect perfect will for each and every one of us. We can tune into that, okay, through prayer and being attentive to the grace of God, or we can reject that. And when we reject that, God will often permit these twists and turns in our lives that come about as a result of our decisions. So chances are Christ didn't want Judas to betray him, um, but he allowed him to. He respected his free will, allowed him to do what he wanted to do. Uh, this also speaks to the fact that Jesus didn't pick 12 little perfect soldiers to be amongst his apostles. Okay, He picked free individuals whom he loved, whom he desired to draw close to himself and then lead the world close to himself, um, but he doesn't pick these 12 little saints. Okay? He picks fully alive human beings who can choose for or against him. Secondly, this speaks to our ability to very quickly and easily turn from God, even when he's right there, revealing himself so beautifully and closely and intimately. So God permitted the acts that flowed from their blindness. When I read that, I think, Lord, open my eyes and heal me of my blindness. Or I think of that father in one of the Gospels, who brought his mute son possessed by a demon to Christ uh, to heal him. He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Okay, my belief is, is imperfect, so, so help me be better. So simultaneously, God knows, and we're free. The Catechism also speaks about God's free choice to lay down his life in such a gruesome, painful, and humble way out of love for us. So just like Judas was not the victim of chance or just a little pawn in this this world stage of salvation history, Christ was not the victim of chance or circumstance of God's irresistible and all-powerful will. Paragraph 609 of the Catechism says, By embracing in his human heart the Father's love for men, Jesus loved them to the end. For greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In suffering and death, his humanity became the free and perfect instrument of his divine love, which desires the salvation of men. Indeed, out of love for his Father and for men, whom the Father wants to save, Jesus freely accepted his passion and death. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Hence the sovereign freedom of God's Son as he went out to his death. So Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, freely chose to suffer and die, fully knowing and seeing all of the details of the story. And the father, again, fully knowing and seeing all of the details of the story, chooses to hand over his son as a sacrifice for us. Paragraph 614 says, This sacrifice of Christ is unique. It completes and surpasses all other sacrifices. First, it is a gift from God the Father himself. For the Father handed his Son over to sinners in order to reconcile us with himself. At the same time, it is the offering of the Son of God made man, who in freedom and love offered his life to his Father through the Holy Spirit in reparation for our disobedience. So the sacrifice is beautifully fitting and perfect. It can only be planned and accomplished by our incredibly awesome God, which paragraph 616 goes on to say no man not even the holiest was ever able to take on himself the sins of all men and offer himself as a sacrifice for all the existence in christ of the divine person of the son who at once surpasses and embraces all human persons and constitutes himself as the head of all mankind makes possible his redemptive sacrifice for all Uh, sometimes my kids will will try to bargain with me and lay out their little plans in a very convincing and adorable way, but seeing more of the picture than they're able to see, I'll say, you know what, that's such a great idea, but here's why this way is actually better for everyone involved. My sister, uh, Kristen, sent a a meme on our our family text string one day that said, Raising kids is like being constantly surrounded by a tiny sales team. They're always trying to persuade you into doing or buying something. And they assume everything you say is just an opening offer. It's so cute. I I laughed when I saw that because it's it's so spot on. Um, But it's interesting. I think it's very applicable to us in our relationship with God. Okay, don't we often try to persuade him? But Lord, if you just look at this one circumstance, factor it, into, factor it into the overall plan, Jesus is like, saw, factored. But Lord, if I were in the garden being tempted by the devil, or if I were one of your 12 apostles, I never would have. Jesus is like, you know, you sound a lot like St. Peter. Okay. So St. Peter said, even though I should have to die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus is like, "Mm mm-hmm, okay, let's see how this plays out. So what's the takeaway uh, for us from, from this discussion? First, love is the beginning and end of all of this. To paragraph 616 of the Catechism says, it is love to the end that confers on Christ's sacrifice its value as redemption and reparation, as atonement and satisfaction. He knew and loved us all when he offered his life. So it's love that gives Christ's sacrifice value. So we can remember, by the grace of God, to receive that love and to return it to him and others by sacrificing out of love. So all of our sacrifices should be born out out of love. Secondly, be humbled in knowing that given the right circumstances, we are perfectly capable of having been the betrayer, like Judas, the denier, like St. Peter, or even the authors of original sin, like Adam and Eve. By the grace of God, acting in accordance with our free will, we can choose each day not to sin. Okay, and not just in large world stage kind of ways, but in simple, everyday ways. Paragraph 598 says In her magisterial teaching of the faith and in the witness of her saints, the church has never forgotten that sinners were the authors and ministers of all the sufferings that the divine Redeemer endured. Taking into account the fact that our sins affect Christ himself, the church does not hesitate to impute to Christians the gravest responsibility for the torments inflicted upon Jesus, a responsibility with which they have all too often burdened the Jews alone. We must regard as guilty all those who continue to relapse into their sins." Since our sins made the Lord Christ suffer the torment of the cross, those who plunge themselves into disorders and crimes crucify the Son of God anew in their hearts, for he is in them, and hold him up to contempt. And it can be seen that our crime in this case is greater in us than in the Jews. As for them, according to the witness of the apostle, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." We, however, profess to know him, and when we deny him by our deeds, we in some way seem to lay violent hands on him. Nor did demons crucify him. It is you who have crucified him and crucify him still when you delight in your vices and sins. Man, when I read that line, we, however, profess to know him. Okay, that's the kicker. I, Rebecca Doherty, who profess to know and love Jesus Christ, continue to sin and contribute to the crucifixion, the suffering, the death of Jesus Christ. So I quote-unquote profess to know him, and yet I gossip just as badly as any non-Christian. I'm just as impatient with my husband and kids. I rationalize just as many little indulgences and comforts as the next person. So am I really that set apart? Okay, God, give me the grace, please, to be set apart. Third and lastly, in the words of my wise and wonderful mother, who is probably quoting someone else, she used to say, work as if it all depended on you and pray as if it all depended on God. So work as if it all depended on you and pray as if it all depended on God. Because it does. We are responsible for our actions and our actions have consequences. And yet, God sees the whole picture, has a beautiful plan, and wants to give us the grace to live our lives well. We, my husband and I are currently in the process of, of selling our house, and we are working as if it all depended on us. So we're spackling, we're painting, we're cleaning, we're packing, we're moving. Simultaneously, we are praying as if it all depends on God, because it does. So we've been praying for, we have, we have wonderful neighbors, we've been praying for a wonderful family to buy our home, so as to bless and be blessed by our neighbors. We're also praying to know the right price, okay? God can see the market and how this is all going to go. We're praying for the right timing for the the sale of our home, uh, depending on, you know, beginning of the school year, people taking vacations. So we are working as best we can to get the house ready. And simultaneously, we're praying, God, you see the whole picture. You see who would be a great fit for our home, for our neighbors, um, who would enjoy this this house, and so please Bring it about according to your plan. God could control us like little robots. So God is God. He has the power to do that. But he doesn't. Okay? He loves and respects us. He loves us and he respects our free will. At the same time, simultaneously, he sees the full picture. He has a beautiful plan. And he can give us the grace to live well. So let's pray this week to be sensitive and obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you see and know uh, all that's happening, all that's about to happen. And so please give us the grace to be attentive to your promptings, your whisperings, your movements in our lives, and may we use our free will to live well, to respond to the grace that God is giving us so that he can lead us in a beautiful way through this life with which he has blessed us. That brings us to the end of our episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll take a brief break and then return to read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 595 through 623. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 595 through 623. Paragraph two Jesus died crucified. The trial of Jesus. Divisions among the Jewish authorities concerning Jesus. Among the religious authorities of Jerusalem, not only were the Pharisee Nicodemus and the prominent Joseph of Arimathea both secret disciples of Jesus, but there was also long standing dissension about him. So much so that St. John says of these authorities, on the very eve of Christ's passion, many believed in him, though very imperfectly. This is not surprising if one recalls that on the day after Pentecost, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith, and some believers belonged to the party of the Pharisees, to the point that St. James could tell St. Paul how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. The religious authorities in Jerusalem were not unanimous about what stance to take toward Jesus. The Pharisees threatened to excommunicate his followers. To those who feared that everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation, the high priest Caiaphas replied by prophesying, It is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. The Sanhedrin, having declared Jesus deserving of death as a blasphemer, but having lost the right to put anyone to death, hands him over to the Romans, accusing him of political revolt, a charge that puts him in the same category as Barabbas, who had been accused of sedition. The high priest also threatened Pilate politically so that he would condemn Jesus to death. The Jews are not collectively responsible for Jesus' death. The historical complexity of Jesus' trial is apparent in the Gospel accounts. The personal sin of the participants, Judas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, is known to God alone, Hence, we cannot lay responsibility for the trial on the Jews in Jerusalem as a whole, despite the outcry of a manipulated crowd and the global reproaches contained in the apostles' calls to conversion after Pentecost. Jesus himself, in forgiving them on the cross, and Peter, in following suit, both accept the ignorance of the Jews of Jerusalem and even of their leaders. Still less can we extend responsibility to other Jews of different times and places, based merely on the crowd's cry. His blood be on us and on our children, a formula for ratifying a judicial sentence. As the Church declared at the Second Vatican Council, neither all Jews indiscriminately at that time, nor Jews today, can be charged with the crimes committed during this Passion. The Jews should not be spoken of as rejected or accursed as if this followed from Holy Scripture. All sinners were the authors of Christ's Passion. In her magisterial teaching of the faith and in the witness of her saints, the Church has never forgotten that sinners were the authors and the ministers of all the sufferings that the Divine Redeemer endured. Taking into account the fact that our sins affect Christ himself, the Church does not hesitate to impute to Christians the gravest responsibility for the torments inflicted upon Jesus, a responsibility with which they have all too often burdened the Jews alone. We must regard as guilty all those who continue to relapse into their sins. Since our sins made the Lord Christ suffer the torment of the cross, those who plunge themselves into disorders and crimes crucify the Son of God anew in their hearts, for he is in them, and hold him up to contempt. And it can be seen that our crime in this case is greater in us than in the Jews. As for them, according to the witness of the apostle, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We, however, profess to know him, And when we deny him by our deeds, we in some way seem to lay violent hands on him. Nor did demons crucify him. It is you who have crucified him and crucify him still when you delight in your vices and sins. Christ's redemptive death in God's plan of salvation. Jesus handed over according to the definite plan of God. Jesus' violent death was not the result of chance in an unfortunate coincidence of circumstances, but as part of the mystery of God's plan, as St. Peter explains to the Jews of Jerusalem in his first sermon on Pentecost. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This biblical language does not mean that those who handed him over were merely passive players in a scenario written in advance by God. To God, all moments of time are present in their immediacy. When therefore he establishes his eternal plan of predestination, he includes in it each person's free response to his grace. In this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. For the sake of accomplishing his plan of salvation, God permitted the acts that flowed from their blindness." He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures had foretold this divine plan of salvation through the putting to death of the righteous one, my servant, as a mystery of universal redemption, that is, as the ransom that would free men from the slavery of sin. Citing a confession of faith that he himself had received, St. Paul professes that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In particular, Jesus' redemptive death fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. Indeed, Jesus himself explained the meaning of his life and death in the light of God's suffering servant. After his resurrection, he gave this interpretation of the scriptures to the disciples at Emmaus and then to the apostles. For our sake, God made him to be sin. Consequently, St. Peter can formulate the apostolic faith and the divine plan of salvation in this way. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. With the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end of the times for your sake. Man's sins, following on original sin, are punishable by death. By sending his own son in the form of a slave, in the form of a fallen humanity, on account of sin, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did not experience reprobation as if he himself had sinned, But in the redeeming love that always united him to the Father, he assumed us in the state of our waywardness of sin, to the point that he could say in our name from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Having thus established him in solidarity with us sinners, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, so that we might be reconciled to God by the death of his son. God takes the initiative of universal redeeming love. By giving up his own son for our sins, God manifests that his plan for us is one of benevolent love prior to any merit on our part. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At the end of the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus recalled that God's love excludes no one. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He affirms that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. This last term is not restrictive, but contrasts the whole of humanity with the unique person of the Redeemer, who hands himself over to save us. The Church, following the Apostles, teaches that Christ died for all men without exception. There is not, never has been, and never will be a single human being for whom Christ did not suffer. Christ offered himself to his Father for our sins. Christ's whole life is an offering to the Father. The Son of God who came down from heaven, not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him, said on coming into the world, Lo, I have come to do your will, O God. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. From the first moment of his incarnation, the Son embraces the Father's plan of divine salvation in his redemptive mission. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of the whole world expresses his loving communion with the Father. The Father loves me because I lay down my life, said the Lord, for I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. The desire to embrace his Father's plan of redeeming love inspired Jesus' whole life, for his redemptive passion was the very reason for his incarnation. And so he asked, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. And again, shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? From the cross, just before it is finished, he said, I thirst. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. After agreeing to baptize him along with the sinners, John the Baptist looked at Jesus and pointed him out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By doing so, he reveals that Jesus is at the same time the suffering servant who silently allows himself to be led to the slaughter and who bears the sin of the multitudes, and also the Paschal Lamb, the symbol of Israel's redemption at the first Passover. Christ's whole life expresses his mission, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus freely embraced the Father's redeeming love. By embracing in his human heart the Father's love for men, Jesus loved them to the end, for greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In suffering and death, his humanity became the free and perfect instrument of his divine love, which desires the salvation of men. Indeed, out of love for his Father and for men whom the Father wants to save, Jesus freely accepted his passion and death. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Hence the sovereign freedom of God's Son as he went out to his death. At the Last Supper, Jesus anticipated the free offering of his life. Jesus gave the supreme expression of his free offering of himself at the meal shared with the twelve apostles on the night he was betrayed. On the eve of his passion, while still free, Jesus transformed this Last Supper with the apostles into the memorial of his voluntary offering to the Father for the salvation of men. This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Eucharist that Christ institutes at that moment will be the memorial of his sacrifice. Jesus includes the apostles in his own offering and bids them perpetuate it. By doing so, the Lord institutes his apostles as priests of the new covenant. For their sakes I sanctify myself, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. The Agony at Gethsemane The cup of the new covenant, which Jesus anticipated when he offered himself at the last supper, is afterwards accepted by him from his father's hands in his agony in the garden at Gethsemane, making himself obedient unto death. Jesus prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Thus he expresses the horror that death represented for his human nature. Like ours, his human nature is destined for eternal life. But unlike ours, it is perfectly exempt from sin, the cause of death. Above all, his human nature has been assumed by the divine person of the author of life, the living one. By accepting in his human will that the Father's will be done, he accepts his death as redemptive, for he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ's death is the unique and definitive sacrifice. Christ's death is both the paschal sacrifice that accomplishes the definitive redemption of men through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the sacrifice of the new covenant, which restores man to communion with God by reconciling him to God through the blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This sacrifice of Christ is unique. It completes and surpasses all other sacrifices. First, it is a gift from God the Father himself, for the Father handed his Son over to sinners in order to reconcile us with himself. At the same time, it is the offering of the Son of God made man, who in freedom and love offered his life to his Father through the Holy Spirit in reparation for our disobedience. Jesus substitutes his obedience for our disobedience. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. By his obedience unto death, Jesus accomplished the substitution of the suffering servant who makes himself an offering for sin when he bore the sin of many, and who shall make many to be accounted righteous, righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus atoned for our faults and made satisfaction for our sins to the Father. Jesus consummates his sacrifice on the cross. It is love to the end that confers on Christ's sacrifice its value as redemption and reparation, as atonement and satisfaction. He knew and loved us all when he offered his life. Now the love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. No man, not even the holiest, was ever able to take on himself the sins of all men and offer himself as a sacrifice for all. The existence in Christ of the divine person of the Son, who at once surpasses and embraces all human persons and constitutes himself as the head of all mankind, makes possible his redemptive sacrifice for all. The Council of Trent emphasizes the unique character of Christ's sacrifice as the source of eternal salvation, and teaches that his most holy passion on the wood of the cross merited justification for us. And the church venerates his cross as it sings, Hail, O cross, our only hope. Our participation in Christ's sacrifice. The cross is the unique sacrifice of Christ, the one mediator between God and men, But because in his incarnate, divine person, he has in some way united himself to every man, the possibility of being made partners in a way known to God in the Paschal Mystery is offered to all men. He calls his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, for Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we should follow in his steps. In fact, Jesus desires to associate with his redeeming sacrifice those who were to be its first beneficiaries." This is achieved supremely in the case of his mother, who is associated more intimately than any other person in the mystery of his redemptive suffering. Apart from the cross, there is no other ladder by which we may get to heaven. In brief, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Our salvation flows from God's initiative of love for us because he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus freely offered himself for our salvation. Beforehand, during the Last Supper, he both symbolized this offering and made it really present. This is my body which is given for you. The redemption won by Christ consists in this, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. That is, he loved his own to the end, so that they might be ransomed from the futile ways inherited from their fathers. By his loving obedience to the Father, unto death, even death on a cross, Jesus fulfills the atoning mission of the suffering servant, who will make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This brings us to the end of our reading selection of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and the end of our episode for the day. Thanks again for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Uh, between now and the next episode, please connect with me on Instagram, at Catholic Light Podcast, and consider... That quote my mom so often said to us, work as if it all depended on you and pray as if it all depended on God. What's a goal, a hope, a dream, something you're striving for right now? Whether it's to sell your home, whether it's to work on a certain virtue, patience, humility, uh, maybe becoming a more prayerful person or one who reads scripture more. Maybe it's working on a certain relationship in your life. Okay, with your spouse, your children, a parent, a sibling, a friend, a neighbor. Consider something that you're striving for right now, a goal, again, a hope, a dream in your life. And this week, work as if it all depended on you. So work on that relationship. Uh, work on, on striving for that virtue. And then simultaneously, pray as if it all depended on God. Okay. I'll do the same. I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. And I'll see you next week on Catholic Light. In the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.